Chapter Five of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Five. Sir Robert Sherland and his horse have kept me away from Chatham long enough, and I must now return to our pilgrims' quarters. I lay awake some time that night. Thinking of the phantom hand and the hidden treasure in Gundulph's tower, and imagining a variety of incidents which might have arisen in the olden time out of the search for the supernaturally guarded gold, the thoughts that came and went as I lay in that strange room, sometimes with my eyes closed, sometimes watching the changeful lights and shadows produced by the passing of light clouds over the moon. Crystallized just before I fell asleep into something like the form given to them in the following tale: the Phantom Hand. Bishop Gundulph, in whose time the nave and tower of Rochester Cathedral were erected, had been in his grave four hundred years, and the era was younger by as long a period than it is now, when there lived in that city, in a crazy old wooden house at the foot of the bridge, an old man named Roger Raynham. In that old house, Roger had lived many years. The only other occupant since the death of his wife, which had occurred a long time before the period at which he is introduced to the reader, being his only child, a maiden over whose head twenty summers had passed at that same epoch, leaving their roses and lilies reflected upon her fair face, their blue skies in her eyes, and the sheen of their suns upon her golden hair. Roger had no definite occupation. He owned some shops in the high street and a score of cottages in the lanes and yards adjacent, where the harshness he displayed in collecting the rents from the poor tenants made him a particularly unwelcome visitor. Widow Joyner, who lived in one of his poor tumble-down houses in Five Bells Lane, used to say that his beetle brows cast a shadow over the street whenever he entered it. He was known too to lend money to the needy at high rates of interest, and as he took good care to have good security for the repayment of the principal, he had the repute of being as wealthy as he was known to be avaricious. On the evening on which this story opens, a fine evening in April, the old miser might have been seen protruding his head from the door, and with his thin hand shading his eyes from the level rays of the westering sun. Looking across the bridge and up the street, muttering inarticulately, owing to a sound which he emitted when displeased, and which can be compared with no other in nature except the subdued growl of a carnivorous beast, he closed the door and returned to his seat by a barred window. "I won't have it," he growled, striking the oaken table with a stout ash stick. She shall marry the miller, or she shan't have a penny of my money. I will leave it all to Saint Bartholomew's Hospital, rather than it shall be squandered by a young fellow who, having nothing of his own, doesn't know the pleasure of possessing money. His soliloquy was interrupted by the quiet lifting of the latch and the entrance of as lovely a specimen of the feminine moiety of humanity as could have been found in Rochester, ay, or in Chatham and Strood besides. So you have got back at last," said Roger, with a distrustful glance at the young beauty. 
"'Have I been long?' she returned, as she set down a basket which she had been carrying, and removed her hat. "'Long?' growled the miser. "'You have been loitering, you jade. You've been talking to that young Popinjay Hubert, the bowyer's son.' "'Indeed I have not loitered, father,' returned his daughter. "'And with Hubert I only exchanged a fair evening, as I passed his father's shop.' "'I warrant me your eyes said a good deal more than fair evening, minx,' said Roger. "'But I won't have it. Mind me, Mildred, I won't have it. Why, he has not a bit of bread of his own to give to a beggar.' "'Will riches without love bring happiness, father?' "'Mildred inquired, raising her azure eyes to the miser's sordid countenance. "'Love! Bah!' returned the old man, with a gesture of contempt. "'When poverty comes in at the door, love flies out at the window.' "'I can never love the miller,' said his daughter, with a sigh. "'And you shall never have a penny of mine if you don't,' exclaimed Roger, striking the table with his stick as if to give weight to his words. Mind that, Mildred, not a penny. Why, Gaffer Gillingham has the best mill within a dozen miles, and some goodly pasture-land, with fat beeves grazing on it. And he has saved money, Mildred. Think of that girl. Money that will buy everything that heart can desire. It cannot buy love, father, rejoined Mildred. Love! ejaculated the miser. "'stamping on the bare floor with his stick. "'How the girl talks! "'I haven't patience to listen to her. "'Look, you, Mildred, "'you will be the wife of Gaffer Gillingham "'in a month from now. "'Mark that. "'Now go to your room, "'and don't let me see your face again "'until you can show a more dutiful and becoming spirit.' "'Mildred obeyed, "'and on the following day did not leave her chamber, "'the window of which looked upon the pleasant path "'beneath the castle wall. Hubert, the bowyer's son, walking that way in the evening, heard the casement opened very quietly, and glancing upward beheld Mildred's tearful countenance. "'Hush!' she whispered, touching her lips with her finger. "'You must not speak to me. I am to be the wife of Gaffer Gillingham within a month. Oh, what is to be done?' "'Gaffer Gillingham!' exclaimed Hubert, his handsome countenance reddening with indignation. "'Why, he is almost as old as your father, and doesn't bear a much better—I mean, he doesn't bear a very good character.' "'But he is rich,' said Mildred, with a touch of bitterness in her tone and manner. "'And gold, in my father's estimation, makes amends for everything else that may be deficient.' "'Such a sacrifice must not "'Shall not be!' exclaimed Hubert, with clenched hands and flashing eyes. "'And who will prevent it, young man?' demanded Roger Raynham, creeping round the corner, from the concealment of which he had been listening to the lover's conversation. "'Who will prevent it, I say?' he repeated, shaking his ash stick at the young bowyer. "'I will,' replied Hubert, confronting him with a stern and indignant glance. "'You, you impudent varlet, you beggar!' exclaimed the enraged miser, menacing him with his stick. "'Look you here, Master Raynham,' said Hubert. 
you are Mildred's father, and an old man, and I bear from you what I would not brook from any other man, my own father excepted. But I am an honest man, and no beggar. And if you touch me with that stick, by all the saints in that calendar, I will pitch you into the river. The ash stick was slowly lowered, and the miser turned away, first raising his eyes to the casement, which had been closed during his brief altercation with the young bowyer. Hubert stood motionless for a moment, and then hastened after the old man, whom he overtook as he was about to enter the house. "'Master Raynham,' said he, subduing his indignation by a strong effort, "'if I, in a week's time, can show you as much money as the miller can put down, will you give Mildred to me?' "'You show as much money as Gaffer Gillingham,' said the miser, regarding him with mingled wonder and contempt. "'You? Why, who are you going to rob?' "'No more of that!' exclaimed Hubert, cheek and brow reddening again. "'Or you will make ground-bait for the fishes yet. Will you promise?' "'Oh, yes!' returned Roger Raynham, in a jeering tone. "'When you can show as much money as Gaffer Gillingham can, you shall have her.' He entered as he spoke, and closed the door. Before he reached his accustomed seat by the barred window, however, he paused, and leaned upon his stick, suddenly becoming thoughtful. "'What can his impudence mean, I wonder?' he muttered. "'As much money as the miller? Why, where is he to get it? Can he be going to rob somebody? It would be a good thing now to find out his game, to make him hand over a part of the plunder, and then to hang him and marry the girl to the miller. Every word of the last sentence was uttered very deliberately, as if each was a stone of the edifice of guilt, the erection of which he was contemplating. Hubert was walking slowly towards the cathedral, looking as thoughtful as the man from whom he had just parted. He was revolving in his mind a bold enterprise, born of desperation, and as yet shadowy and undefined. A stroll in the precincts of the venerable temple would, he thought, enable him to give it form and substance. Two or three monks were walking in the cloisters of the monastery, but their presence seemed to give nothing of life to the gloom that pervaded the sacred precincts, so sombre and silent were they and even the rooks cawed drowsily, and the flapping of their wings was scarcely heard. There was nothing to distract his mind from the idea which was there being elaborated. He walked there for about a quarter of an hour, and then passed under the arched portal of the precinct, and returned to his father's house, over the door of which a couple of arrows crossed upon a target served for a sign. In that quarter of an hour, he had resolved upon an enterprise which he trusted would enable him to claim the fulfilment of the miser's promise, and to win the miser's fair daughter for his wife. On the following night, just as the deep-toned bell of the cathedral boomed eleven, Roger Raynham alighted from a sorry-looking steed which had carried him to the distant homestead of a farmer whom he had been dunning for arrears of interest, and delivered the animal to the hostler of the Golden Cross. "'You have ridden him pretty hard, Master Raynham,' said the man, 
as he noted the steaming and mud-splashed flanks and legs of the animal. "'Hard!' rejoined the miser. "'Aye, it was hard work to get him along, or I should have been home before this.' "'You could have had a better beast, master,' said the hostler, as he led the horse towards the stable. "'Aye, but the charge!' returned Roger, who, as the man and horse disappeared under the arched gateway of the inn-yard, glanced upward at the darkening sky, which seemed to presage a storm, and proceeded towards the bridge as fast as he was able to walk, muttering, "'Does the varlet suppose that I am made of money?' The long narrow street was silent and deserted, and from one end to the other not a light was visible. He had not gone far, however, before he discerned through the gloom two persons who were walking slowly in the same direction, but somewhat in advance of him. "'Hold up, Stephen,' said a voice which he recognised as that of Hubert Bowyer. "'You will soon be at home now. "'Don't leave me till I am safe home, there's a good young fellow,' rejoined the Bowyer's companion in the thick accents of inebriation. "'That is the sacristan's voice.' muttered the miser. "'It is not in keeping with the character of an official of the cathedral to be drunk, and it is a late hour for that young blade to be out. I will see the end of this.' Just keeping them in sight, he followed them until they disappeared within the sacristan's abode, and then ensconced himself in a doorway to watch and wait. Hubert closed the door, groped his way to the chimney-nook, and deposited his helpless companion upon a settle. Then he struck a light with flint and steel, lighted a small brass lamp which stood upon an oaken table, and sat down upon the settle beside the drunken sacristan, who blinked at the light like an owl. "'Are the keys safe, good fellow?' the latter asked, fumbling at his girdle. "'Great sponsibility, you know, office of sacristan.' "'All right, Stephen,' said Hubert, making the keys rattle for the sacristan's satisfaction. "'Loosen my girdle, good fellow,' said the drunken man. "'I am as full as an egg, and as tight as a drum.' Hubert more than complied with the request, adroitly unbuckling the sacristan's belt, and slipping off the ring to which the cathedral keys were attached. "'Let me help you to your bed, or you will be falling on the hearth,' he then said. And the sacristan, staggering to his feet, with a scarcely articulate, "'Good fellow!' he supported him to his truckle bed, upon which the drunken man seemed to fall asleep almost immediately. Hubert then extinguished the lamp, and went out with the keys in his possession. Silence and darkness reigned around the cathedral, Silence as unbroken, darkness as profound, as in the long columned aisles and low-arched galleries within. Hubert paused and listened as he approached the nearest door, for he had thought more than once that he heard footsteps in his rear, but the sound ceased as they had ceased before, when he stood still, and he concluded, therefore, that they were the echoes of his own. He paused and listened again as he stood within the deep-set doorway, and strained his eyes into the gloom, but all was still, and no living thing met his searching gaze. Then he inserted a key into the lock, 
and the heavy door swung open. He stepped into the darkness which seemed to swallow him up, and closed the door. A feeling of awe crept over him as he groped his way into the nave, and saw the white figures of bishops and abbots, barons and knights, dimly and indistinctly revealed between the grey columns, looking like the ghosts of the men whose bones rested below. But he shook it off, and advanced towards the north side of the chancel, his eyes gradually becoming used to the obscurity. He had provided himself with a candle-end, and the means of procuring a light, but he feared to use them where the gleam of a light might be observed through the windows by a watchman or some belated traveller. After groping about for some time he discovered a door, and by trying one key after another he succeeded in opening it. A rush of cold air came forth, and the darkness beyond was so pitchy that for a moment he hesitated to proceed. It was the eve of St. Mark, and on that night, according to a tradition to which everybody in Rochester gave implicit credence, supernatural appearances might be seen in the great tower which Bishop Gundulph had erected in the eleventh century. "'It is for Mildred,' he murmured, nerving himself for the enterprise with that name. "'For her—' I would face all the host of hell." As he was about to step into the darkness, he heard, or thought he heard, a sound as of a heavy door swinging slowly on its hinges, and after pausing a moment to listen, he turned and retraced his steps to the door by which he had entered. It was closed as he had left it, and not a sound could be heard to indicate the presence of a lurker without or within. It must have been fancy, he murmured, as he hurried back to the door in the north wall of the chancel, which he passed without a moment's hesitation, stretching out his hands to avoid stumbling over the stone stairs which lead to the galleries and the summit of the great tower. Almost at the same moment he became aware of a faint light from above him flickering upon the stairs and wall and raising his eyes, not without experiencing a momentary thrill of awe, he observed a strange sight, a human hand suspended in the air, with the fingers extended upward, and emitting a faint luminosity resembling that of the glow-worm. As he paused for a moment, gazing at the startling spectacle with widely dilated eyes and one foot on the lowest step, the phantom hand began to ascend slowly, seeming to float before him as the thistle-down is wafted on the summer air. Ascending two or three steps so hastily that he struck his shin against one of them, he summoned to his aid the courage of which no small share had descended to him, through several generations, from an ancestor who had fought against the conquering host of Norman William at Swanscombe Wood and blew at the luminous hand, as he had blown not long before at the sacristan's lamp. The light wavered, but was not extinguished, and the hand continued to float slowly up the stairs. Let us now return to Roger Raynham, whom we left ensconced in a doorway, watching the sacristan's lodge. He had scarcely posted himself there, when a light flickered for a moment within the lodge, and then shone steadily through the red curtains at the window, 
showing that a lamp had been lighted. Presently the shadow of a man was thrown upon the curtain, and in a few moments the young bowyer issued from the lodge and walked quickly towards the cathedral. The miser left his concealment a moment afterwards and followed him, keeping close to the ivied wall lest he should be observed if Hubert caught the sound of his stealthy footsteps and looked back. "'So sacrilege is his game!' the old man muttered, as he saw Hubert pause at a door of the cathedral. "'He has filched the keys and is after the sacramental plate!' This conclusion was so satisfactory to his debased and sordid mind that he did not immediately determine to ascertain whether the plunder of the sacristy was really the young bowyer's purpose in entering the cathedral. But when he had walked a few yards in the direction of his own house, he resolved to obtain proof of the crime which he supposed Hubert to meditate, and turned towards the cathedral again. Hubert had disappeared, but he had no doubt that he was in the cathedral, and on making a stealthy attempt to open the door, he found that it was unfastened, and that the way was open to him. Stealing into the dark interior, he closed the door, but not so silently that the sound did not reach the ears of the nocturnal trespasser who had preceded him. He heard the footsteps of Hubert returning, and concealed himself behind a column until he had retraced his steps towards the chancel. Then he followed in the young man's track with the stealthy tread of a night-prowling animal of the feline kind. On reaching the door through which Hubert had disappeared, and finding it open, he paused in wonder, and his thoughts took a new direction. "'This must be the door leading to Gundolf's tower,' he said to himself. "'And this, now I think of it, is St. Mark's Eve, when the phantom hand is seen. They say there is a great treasure concealed somewhere in the tower. Can this fellow have discovered it?' or has his love-madness goaded him on to seek for it? For some moments he hesitated to proceed farther, being held back by the fear of phantoms and goblins, as strongly as he was urged forward by the hope of profiting by Hubert's discovery of the hidden treasure. Curiosity and avarice at length prevailed over fear, and he began to ascend the stairs. Groping his way upward as noiselessly as he could, he presently heard Hubert's echoing footsteps before him, and when he had ascended to a height which he guessed to be level with the galleries, he discerned a flickering light which a dark figure was eagerly pursuing. The apparition awed him for the moment, though he could not see distinctly what it was but reflecting that there could be no danger which would not first be encountered by Hubert, he continued to ascend. Up the winding stairs, now narrower and more steep, the phantom hand floated like the goblin fire of swampy woods, or the corpse-candle of Welsh churchyards, flickering in the draught which came down the stairs, and in the strong expirations from the lips of the young bowyer, but never becoming extinguished. So absorbed was Hubert in the pursuit, which became more exciting as the harsh cries and flapping wings of startled rooks and doors warned him that he was near the summit of the tower, 
that he did not hear the miser's footsteps following his own. His last effort to extinguish the phosphorescent light that encircled and wavered about the phantom hand was made when his right foot was on the topmost stair, and the mysterious appearance seemed to be about to mount into the air. A despairing cry burst from his lips as he witnessed its failure, and at the same instant lightning flashed from the black cloud that hung over the cathedral, and as it momentarily illumined battlement and stair, he heard what seemed the echo of his cry from the stairs below, followed by the sound of a heavy body falling against the wall. The flash was succeeded by pitchy darkness and the rumbling of the thunder along the black concave above. The phantom hand had disappeared. Hubert stood motionless for some moments, and then, imagining that its disappearance might be a sign that the flagstones on the summit of the tower concealed the hidden treasure, he struck a light, lighted his candle, and with feelings alternating between hope and despair, examined the stones around him. Not a trace of any removal could he find, and he was unprovided with tools for a further prosecution of the search. He had not abandoned it, however, when he was startled by a groan from the stairs below. Starting to his feet, with cold perspiration distilling from every pore, he held his light above the stairs, listening intently for a repetition of the sound that had startled him. Some dark object was lying upon the stairs below, at a point where they wound round their supporting column. "'Can I have been followed?' he asked himself, as he looked down, lowering the light and holding it forward. Then he descended, and found upon the stairs an old man whose coarse features he recognised as those of Roger Raynham. The face of the miser was deathly pale. Blood was trickling from a ghastly wound upon the head, and no sign of life could be detected. The grovelling spirit had departed with the groan which had attracted Hubert's attention to him. The conviction that the old man was beyond mortal aid was succeeded in Hubert's mind by the serious and perplexing question, how was he to act? Should he call up the head borough? and tell him that there was a man lying dead in the cathedral? Or should he leave the corpse where it was, and say nothing about the matter? If he adopted the first course, he would be called upon to account for his own presence in the cathedral, and perhaps be accused of having murdered the old man. If there had been any life left in Roger Raynham, humanity would have prompted that course and Hubert would not in that case have been the man to listen to the suggestions of selfishness. But he saw no reason why he should imperil his own life to enable Roger's corpse to be removed before it stiffened. So he descended into the chancel, left the door at the foot of the tower open, with the key in the lock, and quitted the cathedral, closing the outer door, but leaving it unlocked. Great was the excitement in Rochester next morning, when the news spread through the city that the keys of the cathedral had been stolen, and the corpse of Roger Raynham, with the skull fractured, found on the stairs of Gundulph's tower. As all the ecclesiastical plate was found safe in the sacristy, 
and the miser was shown by the evidence of the hostler at the Golden Cross to have been abroad at a very late hour, and to have been going towards the cathedral at the same time that the sacristan was staggering homeward from the bull's head, it was surmised that the deceased had robbed the drunken man of the keys, entered the cathedral with the intent of searching for the traditionary hidden treasure, and fallen down the stairs in Gundulph's tower, a fractured skull being the result. Of course, the pretty Mildred did not become the wife of Gaffer Gillingham. She was sole heiress of all the miser's possessions, and she conferred them with her hand upon Hubert Bowyer, to whom all her heart had long been given. The bells of St. Margaret's never rung a merrier peal than on the day they were married, and their future lives passed so happily that Hubert often remarked that he possessed a greater treasure in his wife than he could possibly have discovered in Gundulph's tower. End of chapter 5